and I like the premise of your podcast too, and it's before the millions. And and I can say working with high net worth individuals in the past, I've I've helped people earn many a millions. In a time plagued by groupthink, a tribe known as the Millionites have emerged from the depths of time to alter our trajectory for the betterment of humanity. These are their chronicles. Welcome to our community, where every single week we'll study the craft of some of the most successful entrepreneurial leaders in their given area of expertise. We'll take a trip down memory lane, long before the millions, to uncover their secrets to success and how they've achieved their goals. By doing this, we can fast track our way to success and live the life we've always dreamt of. So, whether you are looking to attain financial freedom, location independence, or reaching the millionth mark of your milestones and more, then you've come to the right place. Stick around to find out what works, what doesn't, and how you can reach your millions. If you would like instant access to our back catalog, visit us at beforethemillions.com. And now, your host, DeRay Olaleye. Welcome one, welcome all to another BTM production. I'm your host for the evening, morning, or whatever you want to call it, but I'm your host. <laughs> you know, when I see a post from a financial expert that says that the stock market has an average yield of 2% more than the real estate market on a yearly basis, something of that sort, I just kind of get disappointed. Disappointed that either they choose not to present all the facts or simply they just don't know. But I'll give you a simple example. Say I have $20,000 to invest in real estate or the stock market. My $20,000 investment in the stock market does not get nearly the same benefits as it would in real estate. Now, this is just an intro, so I won't go too deep. But let's say my 20 k in real estate can easily buy me $100,000 worth of a cash flowing property because of the power of leverage and OPM, other people's money. Albert Einstein said the most powerful force in the universe is compounding interest. He was close. It's leverage, my friends. Leverage. And once you add in all the tax benefits, not including depreciation, then adding in depreciation, debt pay down by the tenant, creating equity, aka a piggy bank, rental income from the tenant, which is extra money you get after you pay all the bills, natural appreciation over time, and forced appreciation, aka fixing up the property to demand higher rents and a maraud of other benefits, then it's not uncommon to have greater than a 25% yield or greater than a 25% return in a year. But mathematicians and some of these people who put these stats together don't factor all of this. They can't factor all of this. It's too many variables. So they report surface level stats, like you're buying the house with all cash and compare it to the stock market. And that can be very misleading. But tis is life. That's why we have to make it our mission to learn and be informed. Eight out of 10 millionaires earn their fortune through real estate, but everybody's playing the stock market game because it's what's been embedded in the system and it's what our parents did. It's what employers and governments have conveniently created the retirement system around. So we act accordingly and don't ask any questions. And it's not like you can go to a financial advisor and ask for help. Most advisors aren't that financially inclined, financially free, or even financially stable. Why would you take advice from a fisherman on how to fly a plane. Well, don't take advice from someone who isn't, in this case, financially where you're trying to go. It makes no sense to me, and I see people do it every day. 
if I want 100 million in real estate assets, I'm going to find and learn from someone who's done it before, not somebody who's flipped a few houses or the lady down the street who just sold her property. That's why I bring experts to the show. People who have gotten to the other side of our goals and have experiences to draw from. Brent Sutherland is today's guest. He feels the same way. In fact, he is a financial advisor. He's also a real estate investor, and he's one of the few advisors that has broken the norms or has broken away from the norms of what a financial advisor is. I can't wait to get into it. We don't get super technical as I, I want to make sure that I'm catering to the avatar of my audience. So if you'd like to hear more technical conversations in the future, let me know. I want to see you succeed at whatever level you're at. In all, this episode was really good. We went a bit over time, but it was well worth it. Well, gang, see you on the other side. The best real estate investing advice ever show is literally the only daily podcast that I subscribe to. And now I'm prescribing for you. The world's longest running daily real estate podcast. That's unprecedented. Visit joefearless.com slash show for the back catalog. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Today, I'd like to welcome Brent Sutherland to the show. Hey, Brent, how's it going? Great. Fantastic. How are you doing today? I'm doing awesome. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I think that we've tried to get you on the show now. This is a second time yesterday. We had some technical difficulties on my <laughs> so I'm really happy to have you. Brent has worked in the financial services industry for over 11 years with the longest stint being in the corporate investment management world. Currently, he owns a financial planning firm that helps individuals turn off the noise and challenge the traditional approach to financial planning and thinking. He is an early retirement advocate, a real estate investor, and a semi-minimalist. <laughs> Brent, what does early retirement mean to you? To me, really what it means is just financial independence. I think we get so caught up in thinking that we just have to work until age 60 or 65, whatever the traditional norm has kind of set for us, that we don't really start thinking about what it would mean for us to establish a stable cash flow underneath our feet today that would allow us to maybe step aside, do some other things that we might be wanting to do, start our own business, or even you know just have more free time on your hands. I think it's a conversation that needs to be had with more people. So I'm trying to promote that message. There's ways you can do that. You just have to think a little more creatively than what the traditional financial system really teaches us. So we can go into more details there for sure. But yeah, that's kind of what that means in a nutshell. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely be able to dive into that and promote that a little bit. But first, we want to get to know a little bit more about Brent Sutherland. So Brent, let's hop in the time machine and, and take it back so we can get to know you a little bit further. Who is Brent Sutherland and how did your journey first begin? <laughs> this is kind of scary me hopping on the time machine here too. But I, it is fun. I, I do like to reflect back. And I think it's often a fun conversation just kind of discovering what shapes people. And for me, it's really no different, too. I think you have to look back to when you were kind of small, younger, and that's where the foundation really starts. And even before college, I remember when I was younger, I was always that kid who liked numbers, you know, collecting baseball cards, remembering stats. I was even that, you, know, you remember those calculator watches you could wear around back in the day? <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> I think I always had the latest version of that. It's, it's nerdy as all get out, but it was just kind of embedded in my DNA. I never quite used the calculator, but I think it just was nice to have just in case, you know. But when I was a child, too, I remember the role models I had in life. My dad was a CPA. And to me, you know, your dad, obviously, the world kind of revolves around him. But that was the definition of success. And my uncle, too, always thought he was well-established. He was a CPA. My oldest sister, when she brought her 
fiance into the fold, into the family. He was working in investments. So my idea of success early on was I have to work in financial services. That's just the way about the future. That's what's going to, it's going to lay out for me. So I took the traditional approach. I went into school and college and, and I just went and got the, a business degree. I didn't really even start thinking about what that might mean for my future. I think when I graduated, I did like everyone else too. I, I just kind of went to the career fair, you know, find a job, go into the corporate world and just kind of put your head down and chug along. And I, I started off and I, I worked in the it was fiduciary accounting. I know that sounds very exciting. <laughs> it's about as exciting as it does sound. I started there, then I went and branched out because I knew I liked stocks. And so I'm starting to discover myself a little bit more on the past. So I started doing investment research. Then I started working directly with clients with their investments. And then, you know, there, obviously there's a lot I'm kind of bypassing here too, but just to give you a broad timeline, I realized that just working with investments solely, you're missing a lot of other pieces that are happening in someone's financial world. So I went back to school and I studied to get my certified financial planner designation. And then I branched out and I worked for an independent company working in the financial planning arena and did that for about three and a half years before having enough courage to start my own firm. But there was a couple of you know, steps along the way there too that really inspired me to to take that path. But we can dig into that into more detail. And whichever point you want to touch on, we'll we'll definitely we'll definitely kind of take a stab at. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. I think that's a good place to start. So you you graduated from college and went into fiduciary accounting. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not much more thrilling than what I did after I graduated. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you can understand for sure how that works. Exactly. Exactly. So, so after that, you decided to, I guess, kind of start dabbling in the stock market. Was your background in accounting helping facilitate this, or how were you picking up the stock market knowledge? I was an economics graduate, but I always had an interest in investing. Luckily, I got an opportunity that gave me, I guess, more experience to learn more about the stock market, and so it was really just investment analysis. Yeah, so that that really kind of got me into the ground floor of the company I was at where I could I could do the research, I could learn more. And with that too, you you become more confident in what you're doing. And and definitely I think I was a little bit egotistic too in the fact that I have all these tools in my hands. Now I can really go out and take advantage of the stock market and kind of cater that to to benefit myself. You make a few mistakes along the way too. I remember one trade I, I made too where I was just kicking myself just because I think the stock market is one of those things. It has a tendency to humble you very quickly. <laughs> I think that's something that if people haven't been trading and, and tried to do this on their own and do a little day trading, your ego quickly gets deflated. I think that one of the most dangerous things that happens to most people is they have a success early with a trade or two, and it gives them the confidence to go out and make larger bets. You're going to get pulled back and checked fairly quickly when that happens. And that kind of happened to me too. But again, you kind of learn the rules of the road when it comes to investing through experiences such as that too, even though they may be difficult. But yeah, that got me into the investment arena. What was neat about it is I got to meet a lot of people that were successful. I was working in a group that was it's considered family office. And really what that means is you're, there's a more condensed service group that caters to fewer clients and they're generally speaking high net worth. So you got to see kind of what was going on in these successful people's world. And that was intriguing because I always wanted to, you know, find out what they were doing, what made them successful. And hopefully at some point, you know, maybe turn that around and kind of implement that in my own world. 
as well too. So I did notice there was. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I was gonna. I was. I was going to ask. So, so how were you able to do that? Kind of start implementing it. Was it a situation in which you were implementing in your in your own, I guess, finances before you ventured out to be a, a financial planner, or did you kind of start being a financial planner, learn the ropes, and then implement that in your own life? Yeah, it was more learning the ropes. But what happened was I noticed there was a commonality between a lot of the people that I considered. And, and when I met them, too, they carried themselves with a lot of it seemed like there's a lot of confidence. Their finances were in order. I said, what's going on here? You know, I want a piece of this, whatever they're doing. But you look and and those people, it seemed like they either had a business they had started and become successful. And at that point, you know, I'm still I still kind of have my head down. I'm in the corporate world. You know, I, I'm not going to think outside the box just yet. You know, that seemed like it seemed very scary. Also, too, I noticed that they had incorporated real estate, a lot of people as an investment structure for their for themselves. That was something I had an interest in. I didn't quite know enough yet, but I started educating myself because I said, you know what, if this is working for them, maybe that can work for me too. But I read books and, and started listening to podcasts and different things as well. But it took a while. I think you have to make sure you're educated before you start real estate investing. I know that you had mentioned that you are a real estate investor as well, too. So the educational piece is crucial. But most people get caught up in this analysis paralysis you know, kind of mindset. And it's, it's easy to do because it's, it's scary to take that jump into real estate. But once I did, I tell you what, crossing that hurdle, it's not as scary as most people think. And even if you, if you get into the ground floor like I did, just buying a single family residence, you know, there's, there's nothing too tricky about it. But you get that first piece of income that comes in in the form of that first rent check. It's really addictive. And you realize that this stuff can work. It's outside the norm of the traditional approach to investing. But that's what really kind of sparked me to start thinking a little differently about where I wanted to go with my own personal finances. And, and then I'm, I'm working with clients now, and I've already branched off at this point into the independent firm where I'm doing traditional financial planning. And we don't recommend at that firm that people buy real estate. It just didn't really fit nice and tidy into our fee structure there at the firm. So I, I was conflicted because I was doing things in my own world that were different than what I was recommending for clients to do. And so that causes a big issue there too. And, and I could only sit there and do that for so long until eventually it caught up to me. You, you have a, a couple of sleepless nights and then it's amazing how that kind of kicks you into gear. I met a couple of people there too and, I, and I'm a big advocate for podcasts. So I think what you're doing here is fantastic too. But I think if people aren't on that podcast train yet, I think you need to because it's such an educational piece that you can jump in. But I had been following on a podcast forum this group called XY Planning Network, and they cater to help younger professionals start their own financial planning business. So I went to a conference and they were there. I listened to them on the podcast a few times. And then when I met them in person, it was a little bit like, oh no, look at these people. And I kind of felt a little bit awestruck. And then I talked to them for a little bit. I'm like, oh, these are just normal people. And the people they're helping are just normal people, just like me too. And I think that reality that I could start a firm and branch out and kind of do that on my own really set in. And I think it really, and you hear this all the time, it's about who you surround yourself with. So I started embedding myself in that community, kept in touch with this group. And eventually over time, that gave me the confidence to make the decision to start my own firm where I could sit across from someone and I could recommend, okay, here's what you really need to do. Think a little bit differently, maybe incorporate real estate, maybe start thinking about other sources of passive income flows that can develop a cash flow system underneath you that you own. And that can really set the stage for financial independence. 
So I did that within this past year. It's been a fantastic experience. I tell you what, I think once you branch out from the corporate world, you're so numb to just thinking, you know, along the company lines that you don't have a chance to step back and think about what you really want. And it wasn't even until a month after I left my old firm that I, it's, it's almost like things just started coming together and your mind just goes and, and you can start thinking as yourself and start thinking differently and whatnot too. And it just opens up a whole world too. So I understand the system and how it's structured. You know, it really fits to how we're structured as an economy today, but I've really encouraged now more than ever, especially having my eyes open to it, that if you can branch out, if that opportunity is given to you, if you can establish in the form of your own financial picture, some of these cash flows to give you a little bit of independence to branch out and do something more creative, do something differently, you're not going to regret it. I don't. And I, yeah, I truly recommend everyone else make that take along those lines. Yep. Yep. I definitely agree. Brent, now you mentioned that you are a professional financial planner slash financial advisor. I yeah. never, not once. And this is, this is a lot of why I wanted you on the show. I've never, not once heard a financial planner utter the words real estate. Why is that? <laughs> Well, you know, this is something we could talk about for a whole show if you wanted to, but I'll, I'll try to condense it for you. Really, it comes back to the way people are compensated in the industry. And there's really two main structures that are out there. One is the commission-based compensation model for financial advisors. And that just basically says that if you go and you seek someone out for guidance, that person, if they're working on the commission structure, what they're going to do is they're going to look at your financial picture. They're going to recommend products that you need in your world that are supposedly supposed to help you out. But what happens is when you put these products in place, they get a nice commission check in return. So you never quite know whether or not they're just recommending these products to you based on how much they're receiving in their pocket or whether it's in your best interest. Now, they're not going to be real estate brokers, so they're never going to recommend real estate because they don't have any incentive to do so. So that's going to be off the table first and foremost. So anyone working off the commission structure, real estate's just not going to come up just because it's not something that's going to put food on the table for them and their family. Now, there's another commission structure out there, and this is the more predominant one. It's called Assets Under Management Model. It's the AUM model. And what it is basically is an advisor will look at your financial picture. They'll try to incorporate all your liquid holdings, all your liquid assets and cash, and put that into a portfolio that they manage for you. So it'll be a mix of stocks, bonds, maybe some other little creative alternatives, but it's something that's more traditional and liquid. And then they'll charge a percentage of that total portfolio that they're managing for you. So in the industry, generally speaking, it's about 1%. So 1% a year of what that total portfolio might be. So if that's a million-dollar portfolio, that's going to be you know $10,000 a year that they get compensated for. Now, again, under this compensation structure, real estate does not fit nice and tidy within that liquid portfolio that they can manage for you. So that's not going to be a conversation that comes up with most people. So... It's something that you have to educate yourself on and then be an advocate for if you are working with a financial advisor that they also educate themselves and make sure that they're aware of how that can benefit you. Now, most times advisors aren't educated in this area. That's just, it's an impact and it's a product of our traditional education system in the financial services industry. Like you mentioned, I'm a financial planner and I went through the CFP certification program. There's not one course that I went through. And they talk about it in the form of REITs, which are a more tradable commercial real estate product, but they don't mention anything about someone holding real estate. So you're not trained in how to evaluate it. 
You're not trained in how to look at economic conditions of certain areas where you might purchase real estate. So again, if a person's not educated, of course, they're not going to talk about it and bring it up too. So there's there's a whole myriad of different reasons why advisors won't talk about this. But I think compensation and education are probably the two primary drivers to why that conversation never happens. Yeah, yeah, Brent, and I agree. I see that so much nowadays, and it hurts my heart to know that there's a an asset class such as real estate that provides you with so many benefits, and that asset class is being overlooked by these traditional asset classes, which I don't think anything is wrong with. So maybe we can kind of get into some of the differences between a traditional asset class and maybe an alternative asset class like real estate. So maybe just talk about stocks versus versus real estate, just to, just to keep it simplified and talk about some of the benefits of, of owning stock and, you know, and some of the benefits of, of owning real estate and some of the downfalls of both. Sure. And again, this is, we can dig as deep into this as you want. This could be a, a very long discussion, but I'll try to keep it we, nice and concise. We may, have to, we, may, we may have to do two parts, Brent, but I'm on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but yeah, I will talk about, and this is something I've, I've been more educated on. I guess I spent more time with it too, but the traditional investments, Structures that are out there, generally speaking, you're going to have stocks, you're going to have bonds, you're going to have cash as kind of an asset class. The great thing about all these holdings, too, is you can open up a brokerage account and you can trade. You can buy a stock within 10 minutes. It's something that can be in your pocket, be in your ownership. It's very liquid. But with that comes a lot of dangers, too, because when something is that liquid, it encourages bad behavior. People, we're emotional creatures. That's just the way we are. And I've noticed this more and more over the years. It's, it's something that's become embedded in me is that people do not act rationally when it comes to money. And so if that power is given to you that you can just buy and sell on a whim, you're going to buy when things are feeling good, which generally speaking, if you're looking at the stock market, is when it's probably priced pretty high. If you're hearing everyone on the street talking about the stock market and how good they're feeling, generally speaking, the chances are the valuations in the stock market are going to be pretty high. Now, what happens over time is there's usually a reversion to the mean. So people will get in when euphoria is very high, and then there'll be a correction that happens. And this is part of the stock market. It's, it's a wave. The trajectory is always upward, but it's, there's a lot of ups and downs throughout that path. And people will buy in again when it feels good, when stock prices are high, then whenever that correction happens, they're like, you know what? This isn't what I planned for. <laughs> I don't want this. And then they'll sell when it's low and it just is a, has a detrimental impact on the investor. Now, if you are disciplined enough where you can buy and hold and withstand all those ups and downs, then you could do really fantastically in the stock market. Generally speaking, if you have a nice mix of U.S. stocks and international companies and especially Right now, what's priced probably more attractively is these emerging economies, such as your Brazil's, your China's of the world. If you can get in there and withstand that roller coaster ride, which is going to happen, you have to accept the fact that it's going to be a whipsaw effect that's going to take you through. But over the course of 10, 20 years, you're probably going to get some lucrative returns to pay you back for that, that risk and that stress that you took by investing. Now, most people can't withstand that. So you have to understand that that's going to be part of the ride there, too. What I like about real estate versus that is that real estate is very stable, but it's also not as liquid. So you have to think about that. If there's an emergency that pops up in your life where you lose your job or whatnot, too, if you're investing in the stock market, you can, generally speaking, you can, you can liquidate some of those funds to help provide during that tough time. 
real estate, no, that money needs to be tied up. You got to think about that as a long-term investment. You can't just kind of flip that one over. But if you look at the benefits of real estate, you kind of get paid for that risk you're taking on by not having that liquidity premium is what we call it in the industry. But you get paid for that. If you buy the right property, and again, this is where education is key. You buy the right property up front, the fundamentals look good. There's going to be positive cash flow. You're going to get that cash on cash return, that passive income in your pocket. You're going to hopefully get appreciation over time. I don't play that game, but you're hopefully going to get appreciation. And generally speaking, you will if you buy and hold long enough. And you're going to get lucrative tax benefits. The government loves for people to hold real estate, so there's going to be tax benefits to it. And then you're going to have someone else if you structure it where you, you have a loan on the property and you're renting it out to someone, they're paying down that loan for you. So there's a principal pay down. So all these things included, your returns on real estate are going to be very high too. I mean, we're, we're talking and it, it varies by which property you buy, but you know, 20% or more is not uncommon. The real rate of return that you're going to get on that investment, that's something that's even higher than what you're probably going to get in the stock market. Again, I like having a mix of assets. I mean, I think people are better off if they have a diversified investment picture that does include stocks, bonds, and real estate. But real estate has to be talked about just because of those lucrative benefits that we just discussed. I mean, you can't find some of these returns in the traditional asset classes such as stocks and bonds that you can in real estate. Now, I know there was a lot of verbiage I just kind of threw your way, but I hope that makes sense and and we can dig into any area that you want. Yeah, there. that was perfect. I think that's a great overview. And just kind of alluding to some of your points, I definitely believe that the stock market is very liquid and, you know, you can get your money tomorrow. Everything's a click of a button and that can be seen as an advantage. And but also on the on the other end of that, you know, with real estate not being so liquid and, you know, it's a disadvantage. Yes. But sometimes that second thought, you know, when you know that you're even if you're, you are in trouble, because you know that it's not as liquid, maybe you'll figure out another way to get out of trouble. And also knowing that it's not as liquid will kind of help you hold on, you know, because again, mm-hmm. we're kind of the same investors. We're more so buy and hold investors. So because it's not as liquid and you're not able to just push a button and, and your real estate is sold, it kind of mitigates that risk that you that you kind of get with your fingers when the stock market or, or when the market in general just starts tanking. So I view that as an upside because it kind of, it kind of puts a, another barrier in front of you to maybe I can figure this out another way or maybe I should hold on to this. And, and I kind of like that. So I agree. I agree. Yep. So kind of going a little bit deeper. So with the stock market, we have we have liquid assets, and you know my background in real estate. I know that there are certain real estate models that I can follow, and I can plug numbers in. I can create a financial picture just just with the numbers from the asset. You know, pulling the P and L, and you know, pulling expenses, and you know, kind of seeing what interest rates are today. Like, I can create a financial model that that I can, in the foreseeable future, know or maybe predict what type of returns I'd be getting. And sure. I think that there are similar models in the stock market. But again, Brent, you're the expert, you're the financial advisor. So kind of talk us through maybe some some passive investors that have corporate jobs and, you know, they do have a certain amount of their paycheck allocated to their 401k and they're investing in the stock market. Just kind of how would someone go about making sure that you know, at least they're in safe, good investments at this point, because I think we are at a critical point and kind of maybe even share your opinion on on this cliff we may be headed towards. Sure. I'm actually going to 
put together a manual on too about how to kind of properly structure a portfolio because I feel like oftentimes too I see people what they're invested in and it's it's quite frightening and this is just because people don't really quite understand you know what a particular fund is all about whenever they're picking their options in their 401k and whatnot. And it's unfortunate, but it's because, again, we don't have a lot of training. We don't have a lot of education about investments and personal finance just in the way we're raised here in this country. It's not in our primary education system. And even if you do choose business as what you go into for college, generally speaking, you're not digging into investments hands-on. So what people do is when they're in their 401k and their, their retirement plan at work, they'll look Okay, there's a whole myriad and a whole array of options you have available to you. And what they'll do is they'll list these out. They'll have all the names and maybe the different fund families alphabetically listed. And then it'll show here's what the historical performance has been. And you know what happens most times is that people will look and they'll say, I don't know what these funds mean, but let's look at what they've done. And they'll pick the ones on the right. They might pick two or three and they'll say, well, this one's done well. So I'll pick that fund. And this one here is done well. I'll pick this fund. And then maybe a third. And then they're stuck with these three funds. They don't really know what that entails. And what happens is sometimes maybe just that particular fund had a nice run for five years. Maybe it was heavily invested in commodities such as gold that had a really nice run in the mid-2000s, early 2000, really 2005, 2009. And it could have just been that that particular marketplace had a fantastic run and they're jumping into something that traditionally speaking has not performed that well over the course of time. They just don't know. So getting back to your, your question here too is that I think if you're looking to structure a, a portfolio and, and there is a lot of money tied up into traditional investments. So if you're that average investor and you don't know what to do with your 401k, think of really if you're structuring from a whole, think of a mix between stocks and fixed income. So stock funds and bond funds. If you're a really conservative investor, Generally speaking, you're going to have a little bit more of your money tied into fixed income or bond funds just because they don't provide as much volatility. But everyone needs a little growth to counter inflation and to grow your portfolio over time. So you have to have a mix of stocks in there. If you're looking to diversify, if you're younger, you can have a larger allocation of stocks. And within that stock mixture, you want to have probably about 50% in U.S. So if there's an S&P 500 fund, that's really a good measure of how the U.S market's performing, maybe about 50% in U.S. Then you want to start looking internationally for the rest of the mix, too, because if you look at the world as a whole, right now, about 50% of the total market capitalization is in 50% is in U.S. and 50% is in international. So if you kind of mirror that mix in your 401k, you're going to have a nice diversified portfolio mix that is representative of the world economy. Now, right now, the U.S. is a bit overvalued at least from every measure I've seen and read. So if you want to tilt even a little bit more in the international space than what you have exposure to in the U.S. space, I have no issue with that. I think I think the returns near the midterm are going to probably be better internationally than the U.S. space. Now, historically speaking, the S&P 500 has generated about a 10% annualized return. International developed countries such as Europe, Canada, They've earned about the same, a little bit lower, maybe about nine, nine and a half percent. But the emerging market space, the China's, the Brazil's, the Russia's, the growing countries of the world, you can argue whether Russia's growing now or not, but these emerging countries have generated even higher than the S&P, and it's generally speaking about 12 to 13 percent annualized. So to give you some perspective of what you can probably expect to see between that mix of U.S. and international assets, it's going to be somewhere probably in the long term around 10 percent. 
So just kind of keep that in mind. If you're investing in fixed income bond funds, that's going to give you probably more along the lines of maybe a 4%, 5% real rate of return. So keep that in mind. Uh, one thing I will say is that most companies are leaning towards this, incorporating these target date funds within their retirement plan offerings. If you're not an active investor and you don't really quite understand the stock market, pick one of those target date funds because they're going to go ahead and balance out your portfolio for you. So within those funds, they're going to have a nice mix of stocks, bonds, based on probably what your risk tolerance is going to be. So pick one of those target date funds for the age that you're planning to retire because I think they usually list it. If Vanguard, they'll have Vanguard target date and they'll list a year beside that. Match that year up with whatever year that you're really kind of planning to step aside and retire. And you'll have a nice blended portfolio. So it makes the picking and choosing of those funds a little bit easier. But again, every company has different offerings. So not everyone's going to have that in there. So if, if not, just make sure you have a nice blend of, of a U.S. fund, an international stock fund, and then get a nice – they should have a total bond market fund in there too. That's all you really need for your fixed income portion of your portfolio. Okay. So that's a broad overview. And, and I, could, I could dig into this in a higher degree, but yeah, that's, that's just uh, very, very broad. Hey, Brent, I think that was amazing. For the listeners out there, the BTM listeners, that was for free. <laughs> so, <laughs> so just keep that in mind. That was for free. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners are taking lots of notes and they're going to log into their account and act accordingly. International markets, emerging markets, China, Russia. I'm pointing out the key points here. So let's just say that our listeners or there are listeners that, you know, some of these things are just going way over their heads. And sure. you know what? let me just look into, into hiring professionally. I want financial advisor. What do I look for? And maybe what type of fee structure should I look for or attempt to create to align my benefit and my financial advisor's benefit? That's a great question, too. And I wish more people spent more time, too, on their search for financial advisors. And what I see is very common. People will just, as they're driving around town, kind of conducting their business, going to the grocery store or whatnot, too, they'll, they'll pass by a shop that, you know, it might be a local firm or it could be a, a major corporate firm, too, where they're like, oh, I think those people do investments. And that'll be the first place they'll stop if they're thinking, okay, I need to get my financial picture in order. Let's just swing by that place there too after we picked up our groceries and just see what they have to say. Now, there's a lot of danger to that too because you're not quite sure how that person's, like we talked about, is compensated, whether or not they're lining their interest up with really what's best for you. So what I recommend to most people do, and this is a growing trend among advisors right now too, is that there's this fee-based compensation structure out there that's it's very clear. It's mainly more so by the hour charging or fee per service. In order to be able to find people like that too, there's a large network of people that are aligning themselves with this type of fee structure that are part of an organization called NAPFA. It's called NAPFA. It's a National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. If you're looking to find someone in your area that's going to really just be based on a fee-only structure, and so really you're trying to take all conflicts of interest off the table. You don't want them just to recommend you go into you know, a fund that's going to pay them a nice commission in return or just investments only within a specific portfolio. Go to this organization. They have a find an advisor tool. Look in your local market. And if you're looking to, and I encourage everyone to do this too, someone that specializes in also recommending real estate as a holding, there's a box you can check under your search down there. And I think there's a category called real estate investments. Click that box search your local market, 
chances are you might have one or two people that pop up. If you're in a major market, yes, you're going to have you know a handful of people to choose from. Local markets, you might have to drive a little ways to find someone, but I encourage you to do so because you have to make sure their interests are lined up with yours. Otherwise, you're probably not going to get to the place that you want to get with your finances and hopefully sooner in life rather than waiting till that traditional 62, 65 year old range. <laughs> Let's kind of get into that and get a little bit into more of your story and maybe talk a little bit more about your company and how you set up the financial future of your clients or how you aid in the setup of the financial future of your clients. So, so you got started a few years ago and this was immediately after you were working as a fiduciary accountant and kind of walk us through, you know, how you got started, how big your team was, how you structured it and kind of what your mission is and what, what you're looking to achieve by, you know, having such an amazing company in my eyes. <laughs> hey, thanks. Where I was before, too, we, we were charging under that. And I was talking about the assets under management model. So we, we charged based on the portfolio that we were managing for people. So there was obviously a lot of incentive to, and it was very sales oriented as well, too. So they want you to they have targets set up at the beginning of the year. Here's what your targets are for how much money you can bring in that we can manage. really quick. Did you say sales oriented? Oh gosh, yeah. So, so, <laughs> yeah. so, so they taught you guys sales, but no real estate. No, no real estate at all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it, it's amazing because it, it kind of when I'm sitting there and I'm working with someone, I like to think I have a lot of conviction in what I'm doing and feeling good about what I'm doing is providing a, a fantastic needed service for someone. If I'm feeling like there's a sales pressure to have them bring money in from other sources, and it might not quite be in, quite frankly, their best interest. If someone has a lot of debt on the outside that's high interest, that maybe we need to liquidate a portion of their portfolio to help pay that off so they can advance further, quicker. That's going to be discouraged under this model just because they want to have all those assets in-house. Don't liquidate and sell to, to pay off something else. Keep them here so we get paid more. I would just got to the point where I couldn't really take that anymore. So the way I structured my company was that I wanted to just have basically speed for service. So most people really need a, a, just a full comprehensive financial analysis to start. And that's kind of bringing all these pieces that you have in your financial economy bringing them all together and making sure they're all working towards common goals. So I have one fee for the financial plan. Now, if you need help implementing that plan, there's a monthly retainer fee that you can also sign up for. So we can walk through those steps of implementing all the recommendations together. And then we can also go through the ropes of really thinking creatively about deploying your money towards other types of investments, such as real estate and other passive income sources. So, But I'm not tied to having them have their money managed in the traditional sense. It's really just fee for service. And really, if someone comes in too and they just have a question, I also set up an hourly fee. So if, if they say, you know what, I'm not sure if my family's properly insured. Can you look over my benefits? Can you look and see what maybe else we need out there? And I'll say, yeah, you know, it's going to take us a, a couple hours to do. So here's the fee for that. Are you comfortable with that? And then we kind of dig in from that approach. But again, that allows you to kind of sit back, not have any biases but instead, just look at their picture and honestly recommend what you think is in the best for them. And that's just something, like I said, that is not the traditional approach out there. And I think there's a growing trend towards this type of fee structure. But I hope it becomes a lot more commonplace. I have faith in humanity, generally speaking, and I think, I think it will. And I think there's a demand for it, especially with the younger millennials and professionals out there. They kind of get that. It's almost like a menu. I want to go in. This is what I want. I want to pay for it. And then if I need something else, I want to pay for that too. 
I don't want this just kind of sitting back and money's being pulled from my account, even if you aren't looking at it. You're not actively managing. You're not doing anything with it. I'm just, you're just charging me. I'm just kind of ongoing. It doesn't resonate, I don't think, with the younger generation as much. We have a lot of information out there. The, the web has been fantastic in providing us transparency across the industry. So I think people know. They're just more educated on how fees are structured. And there's fee compression in the industry, too. So all these things are going against the old system. But I think they're providing a boost for this more just very transparent fee-per-service type of model. So I'm hoping that that will be a growing trend. Okay, so Brent, you found a problem, which is what most successful entrepreneurs do is they find a problem. You found a problem and you created a solution. And how long has your company been up and running to this day? I started at the very beginning of the year, so this is still brand new for me. Oh wow! Yeah. So we're right here on the launching pad. So what are <laughs> yeah. what are some of your of your goals this year? And maybe well, I think the next five years. And I like the premise of your podcast too, and it's before the millions. And and I can say, working with high net worth individuals in the past, I've I've helped people earn many a millions. You know, so that was a nice target, and it's cool when you get get to see someone, so portfolio really grow, but. I think for me, if I have a goal this year too, and, and what's happened with the company too is, and I, I never had to wear a marketing hat. Now I do. And it's something I've started to delve into a lot more. And I found that I really enjoy it. I like writing you know, pieces on the website that are informative. I want to create a lot of materials for people to download for free. And then if we need to get into the weeds, maybe there's a charge for some of those services. But I want to have my website as a resource, not just for my clients. But what I'm finding is I really enjoy writing for the broader market. I think I can help more people and reach more people if, if I can have this as a resource page for all and not just those who I'm working across the table with. So I really want to grow the website. My goal is to, and this is not going to happen this year, I understand that, but to go back to the premise of your show, I'd love to have a million unique visitors, yes. you know, eventually per year hit my website. And I think that can just, I can make more of a difference if that were to happen, then I can just work in one-on-one. So I've gotten really excited about this and developing content and providing resources for free. So I want to really delve into that. So that's going to be my, let's just target the next, you know, maybe three to four years. I'd like to reach that mark. Okay. Okay. Definitely. Right. I think that what you're doing is amazing. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that you're licensed in one state. Yeah. Pennsylvania. I'm licensed in Pennsylvania. So that kind of brings me to my point that, you know, even though you're licensed in Pennsylvania and, you know, you have this site that kind of reaches, it reaches us all, you know, regardless of where we are. So you're not, you're not coming from a selfish place. You're not saying, oh, I'm licensed here. So I'm going to focus here and try to, you know, get as many clients as I can. You want to share the information. You want people to know what's going on. You want people to be informed. You want people to get financially educated. So I love that. And I think that the secret to living is giving. Got that from Tony Robbins, by the way. (laughs) I like that. Definitely believe in that mantra. So yeah, that's amazing. Really quick. I just want to touch on one thing in your area of expertise and maybe get your opinion on this, but Snapchat, (laughs) a company that makes no money, theoretically, has a crazy valuation. Can we, again, I don't know how much you follow this, but maybe share your opinions on Snapchat and if people should be buying into that. Well, it's like any hot IPO that comes onto the market, especially in the stock and the tech industry, is that if you're going to buy in early on like this, you're going to be in for a very wild ride. When Facebook was released, that was one of the, the largest IPOs I can remember. Snapchat, I mean, it had a lot of hoopla too, but I remember Facebook back in the day when I was there. There was people calling 
I mean, it was old people that didn't know anything about tech. They wanted in on it because they thought it was going to be such a hit. What happens is these companies aren't profitable for a long time. So every time that they make a quarterly earnings report call, it's going to, the price of the stock is going to whipsaw around to the upside if it's above what the expectations were. Extremes to the downside too, because oftentimes these companies aren't going to be profitable for quite a while. And Snapchat, we just saw that, you know, that they released their earnings and they were below what the forecast had predicted. So they're going to take a major hit now. But that's part of the ride of buying into these companies. You no, know, I think that they have good tech. I think that their their camera and their app is, is such a good piece of technology for and everyone's on board with it, you know, excited about it. But what are the barriers to entry to? You have to start thinking about all these different types of equations. There's a lot of companies out there that have money that can develop their own tech that might be able to catch up with Snapchat. So is it a surefire bet? No. There's always a risk with this. I think I always caution people on getting in with these big companies early. Don't give in to the euphoria. Instead, think about other, other ways of growing your money. Think about real estate. You know, Otherwise, this is very emotional if you get into investments such as Snapchat or, or Facebook early or any of these big tech firms that come out with their IPOs. I strongly usually advise against jumping in during these times. And let things settle for a little bit. See if they start turning the train towards positive earnings. At least start tilting more that direction. If those earnings keep going down, that's just a world of trouble. You don't want to be in on that ride. So wait and see if there's some positivity that, that does tend to peak its head here in the near future. Then maybe consider it. But right now, it's way too early. Okay. okay. That's great advice, Brent. Thanks for answering that question so thoroughly. I know I put you on the spot with that one, but I knew I wanted to get that one in there. <laughs> well, a lot of people are excited about that when I get it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So let's kind of begin to transition a little bit towards your milestone and, and your success. So you, you have this plan to get 1 million page, is it page views over the next three, four years? Yeah. Unique users, unique visitors in a year. I love to see that. Unique visitors. See, I'm trying to focus your your goal to make sure that our listeners can, can kind of capture it and hold you accountable. So we're aiming for 1 million unique visitors in the next three to four years. Is that right, Brent? That's correct. Now, in the course of this year and maybe even next year, I guess this would be what we call the, the ramping up phase. What are some of your plans to get there? Well, I think doing, I mean, obviously podcasts such as this, and writing enough pieces, I'm trying to build my network online too. And, and that's making connections and even the blogosphere and everyone else out there in, in the financial services industry. So I'm making an effort every day. And this is something I just talked about with my wife this week is that I need to set aside a certain amount of time each day to go out there and make those connections happen, communicate online, build that network. And hopefully that'll grow over time. I'm going to start measuring this out. So each month I want to make sure I measure and see if it's working, see if it's growing. If not, I'm going to have to step back and make some changes. But I think being consistent in the approach hopefully will pay off. So setting aside a certain amount of time each day to try to build that network is going to be kind of my foundation focus. And I'd I, I like to stay in touch with you and see if this works as we go forward. Right now I'm still in the early stages. So that number I have currently looks pretty paltry compared to the Megan, unique visitor figure I'm, I'm targeting, but we'll see if that grows through the course of the year. And if not, it's like anything else in life. You have to kind of make adjustments and to your approach and, and shift gears and see if something else works for you. Love it. Love it. Okay, great. So yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to bring you back on the show and kind of see where we're at here in a couple months or maybe in a year or two. So, okay. So really quick, you kind of touched on this. So I, I wanted to kind of, kind of see 
what you do on, on a daily basis. So maybe walk us through, you know, from the time you wake up, just an average typical day in your life, from the time you wake up to the time, I guess, you get back home where you decide that, that you want to go to sleep. And we, what, what the purpose of this question is or this exercise is, is to maybe pick up on some of the habits or traits that have already made you successful. Because although you have this magnificent goal, you, you started from being a financial advisor at a company in which you didn't feel comfortable with with the way things were going and you branched out and a lot of people aren't able to do that regardless of how they feel about you know where they are or, or what they're doing so i think there's a lot to be said about that so let's maybe walk through a typical day in your life and and kind of go over some of the routines or habits that you like to implement that you think attribute to your success sure i'd, I'd love to dig in there too and, and let me just say too i know there's a lot of people that, that do kind of put their head down and just go through the natural motions. I think everyone inside of them has some creativity. And I think they want that to express itself. They just don't know how. So, you know, even if it is a small change in what you're doing every day, I think it can make a dramatic impact. So surround yourself with a community out there that's going to inspire you. If there's something on your mind that you want to kind of get into, you know, go online. Even online, you can, you can envelop yourself in some communities that really will provide the motivation and support that you need to maybe take that step out into doing what you want to do. But what I do each and every day is I'm, like we said, I'm a numbers guy. I've always kind of been that way. Along with that, maybe you can say the same for yourself too. Sometimes I can be a little bit too structured. I don't know if OCD is the right word, but I have a routine. I like routines. So what I do each morning, I get up, walk the dog. I usually exercise because I find that's my time to listen to podcasts, to get motivated. And getting that blood flow and really starts my day. It starts me thinking fresh. Then I come back. I can sit down on the computer. I can write what I want to write first and foremost to kind of begin. And then I'm going to start digging into going immediately into the social networks and trying to make those connections. So I'm going to go strict routine throughout the morning. It's going to be exercise, writing, and then communication. And then in the afternoon too, that'll be when I communicate with clients or what have you, video chats, setting that up too. So I can do some of that work too, where I'm just doing the one-on-ones. My morning is when I think the clearest. And I think everyone out there needs to probably figure out what type of person they are. Do you think more clearly in the evening? Do you think more clearly in the morning? That's when you need to prioritize what it is that you're really looking to do to grow or expand your business or or what ideas that you do have, because that's going to be your prime driving moment for what your brain, when your brain operates. So to me, I'm putting a focus on the morning. That's when I'm going to write. That's when I'm going to communicate, try to build that network, because that's when my brain operates the best. How were you able to figure out that you're a morning person? Or was it like some type of test that you took or just you, you just know yourself? (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I know myself. I, I know there's some tests out there and I, I came across one recently. I can't remember the name of it, but they kind of measured whether you were a morning or, or evening person. But I've always been an early riser. I've always enjoyed the morning and I, I can tell in the evening I just get sluggish and I'm not, I'm not operating on all cylinders. And, and so it's very obvious for me and I know everyone else, it, it might not be that obvious to them. But yeah, if, if you're not quite sure, maybe go out there and see if there's some tools to help you kind of figure that part out. But I've always been a, a morning person. It's just the way I'm kind of wired. Okay. Are you in Pennsylvania right now? Is that where you're looking? Yeah. yeah. Okay. The great city of, of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where it's raining and dreary this morning. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Here in Dallas, Texas, it's, it's looking pretty dreary, but we should get the rain here in an hour or two. Anyways, okay. Kind of shifting on to the next segment of our show, we're going to ask you a series of four questions, and you're going to be able to answer them to the best of your ability. 
You are listening to the Before the Millions. Before the Millions. Before the Millions. Before the Millions. Before the Millions podcast. Brent, what is your favorite Before the Millions book? I would say that the books that I I probably like the most that have inspired me the most, and this is going to be one I'm sure a lot of readers our listeners of the show can can attest to is Rich Dad Poor Dad. It made a significant impact on me too, just thinking a little differently about my own financial picture, what was really an asset as opposed to just something that's sitting on one certain column of your your balance sheet. You know, what's making you money? What do you own? I think that's important for everyone to think about. From a traditional investment standpoint, I think a book I really like is called The Behavioral Gap, and it's by Carl Richards. It just tells you more about how to prepare mentally to invest in the traditional stock, bond, investment marketplace too. How to not make the mistakes that most investors do make. I think that one, he lays it out in real easy terms with these little graphs that he draws too that are easy to understand. So I think everyone can benefit from that book. But those two, I think, are just, they're ones I always kind of reference back to. Okay. Yeah, the behavioral graph is a new one. I'm definitely going to have to check that out. It sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, it's good. Yep. And Rich Dad, Poor Dad, of course, classic. Many of the guests on the show, they allude to that fact. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? This is an interesting one. I think for me, in my industry too, especially financial planning, financial services, you can't just kind of come in off the street and have credibility. So I knew credibility and, and gaining credibility was going to be key. And with that comes a little bit of experience. But in my industry, what I do is I had to kind of sacrifice to go back to school really get some designations after my name to make sure that that credibility, whether or not it was warranted, but it, it looks good on paper and people automatically give you the respect that, that hopefully you deserve. So I went back and sacrificed for a year, taking my weekends to, to go back and do the coursework for the certified financial planner designation. I think having that after my name too right now just gives me credibility. And I know I have great ideas. I want to share those ideas. But when you have that after your name too, other people tend to listen a little bit more too. So I think that was a sacrifice I knew I had to make in order to make a difference going forward. Okay, love that. Really quick, let's ask a question 2.5. Just because I know that we've talked about we've talked about your career, we've talked about views from an investor standpoint, but let's talk about some other financial advisors and kind of talk to the newer financial advisors, maybe somebody who's just now stepping in that role, has been in that role for a year. I know that I get tons of emails and they're, they're pretty persistent about, you know, meeting up and figuring out ways to help me in my, in my financial path and, and things of that nature. So let's, let's talk to the newer financial advisors and maybe give them advice on how they can build up that credibility because, you know, just kind of based on how I like to build my teams, wherever, wherever I go and what business I'm in, I'm going to want to get the best of the best. So if I were to look for a financial advisor, I would look for a financial advisor who has done what I'm looking to do. I wouldn't mm -hmm. necessarily look for a financial advisor who who is brand new and is looking to, you know, start helping me out. I don't think I can get a lot of value from that. I think I'm going to look for a more seasoned financial advisor who also is an investor because I wouldn't you know, it goes sure. because there's that chicken before the egg concept with things like financial advising. How do you suggest somebody build up that credibility or start out their journey in financial advising? Well, this is a good one. I think what's important here is 
if you can discover, if you're looking to get in this financial advisory realm, you know exactly what you want to do, how you want to kind of structure your planning, what your approach and your philosophy is. If you can discover that early, that's going to put you well ahead of the game because you can then aim and target for working at a firm that has that same mindset, that same knowledge. And I tell you what, just experience there, going in and, and knowing the talk, knowing the lingo, learning from the people that are doing it the way you want to do it. It won't take you long to get up and running where if you did decide that you wanted to branch out on your own, you'll kind of already have that knowledge base in place. And then on your resume too, you can say, look, I've worked at this company here that does things exactly the way that I want to do them. So it was a great learning experience. I'm now kind of up on my feet and running. But it doesn't hurt in this industry too to have some credentials to go along with your name, whether that be going back and getting your your MBA. I mean, that's a difficult one. I know a lot of people that it gets expensive nowadays too, but look into designations such as the certified financial planning designation. Look at the chartered financial analyst if you really want to dig into the investment side of things. Explore those options. They're going to really pay off in the long run. But I think lining yourself up too early as possible, as early as possible, with a firm that has your same convictions is probably the best way to get to where you want to go. Experience is key. If you can make that experience more valuable early on, you're going to be a lot better off. Yep. Yep. Okay. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? This is a, a challenge too, but I think to me, it's there was one gentleman I worked with at a prior firm and it was it was a large corporation, big bank. And he just had the most humble attitude about everything that I, I dealt with. And, and to me, his approach to investing, his experience with investing was crucial in me kind of learning the ropes and what I needed to do. He really taught me to, to put my ego aside and start thinking about the motivators that I had, the reason I got excited about investing, what it was about this. Start, so start asking those internal questions, which I never really asked before. I just kind of said, okay. I know this is what I need to do. I'm just going to kind of go along this path. He was extremely motivating in the fact that he kind of forced me almost just because he was walking the walk. He didn't have an ego about this stuff. Most people in financial services and investments do. And he had respect from everyone. I was like, this guy doesn't have an ego, but everyone respects him. What's going on there too? But he he knows how to put that ego aside. He kind of taught me to do the same. And you'll go far too, I think, if you set that ego aside. But yeah, he was extremely motivating. And I think he was really influential in allowing me to kind of step back and start thinking about what I wanted to do. So if you haven't done that in your own world too, you know, put that ego aside. Don't think about what society is thinking about you. Think about what you want to go, where you want to go with your life. It won't happen right away, but I think you'll start painting that picture pretty clearly if you keep at it. Definitely. definitely. And he may have not been that age, but did you have a, a mentor or somebody kind of help you along while you were starting your business? I've been blessed here too, but my wife is very creative and she has her own business as well too. So I've seen her go through the struggles and the ups and the downs and whatnot too, but leaning on my wife, and I know that's a generic answer to say, but I probably wouldn't have taken this step if it wasn't for her, you know, kind of being there as a coach, motivator along the way too. So having that partner in crime always helps. Yep. Yep. I definitely agree. Why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention on getting to the millions? This is a, an interesting one too, but I think it's just a function of really just the way the system is kind of structured. You know, we discussed this in the show here too, is you're almost kind of taught to go through the ropes. Don't ask a lot of questions. You just kind of go in your world. You'll make a nice living, which is fine. So don't ask questions. But I think the function of the system is the reason why a lot of people are stuck is that you don't have time to step out 
and start thinking about what it is that you really want to do. How can you make a big difference? I think it's great now, too, because we, we have the world so opened up to us in the form of you can chat with people who have the same mindset as you in a different country, let alone just a different town, you know, too. So there's a whole world out there of people that can probably impact and motivate you. So connect with those. But yeah, try to step out of the system and start thinking a little differently. And I think, unfortunately, too many people are caught into the way the system is structured. And, and it's easy to do. But I think really, most of the times, it's just that traditional, you know, structure we have in place that allows people to go into kind of robot mindset and not go out and, and branch out on their own. Yep, yep. I love that. That was actually probably my favorite segment of our show. Yes, you have to you have to get out there. You have to break these these traditional barriers. You have to figure out, you know, what you want to do and how you want to go about doing it. And I don't think that there's a proper formula to follow, but I think that you should get educated at the very least. You should get educated because there's so much out there and if you just kind of go with the flow and allow, you know, the government or these corporations to kind of place you any and everywhere and how they feel. I mean, it's not going to work out to your benefit. I guarantee you. So yeah, that's great advice. In closing, we've learned so much from Grant. I really, really want to thank you for coming on the show for being flexible and being able to reschedule. Oh, this has been fun. No, no problem at all. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure from baseball cards to, <laughs> to <laughs> from baseball cards to the XY Planning Network to Snapchat to international and emerging markets. We've covered everything. I think that our listeners got a lot of value from the show. So again, Brent, I thank you a lot. And if the listeners want to connect with you, follow up with you and continue the conversation, how would they be able to do that? I think the best way to do this is, and I'm, I'm developing, like I said, all these social networks too, but go to my website. It's Intellivest. It's N-T-E-L-L-I-V-E-S-T dot com. And you'll find a lot of resources there. Like I'm trying to build out to the, the content that's on there. So if, if you want to sign up for the newsletter on my website there too, you'll always be in the loop with the latest and the greatest that, that my mind is kind of offering out there to the public. So go to the website. You can you can also find my information there too if you want to email me direct and you have a question or if you want to chat. I love talking about this stuff. So if anyone just wants to kind of have a quick conversation, just go ahead and schedule a, a time to call and we'll just kind of, we'll just talk through whatever else, even though I'm only scheduled to work with or registered to work with clients in Pennsylvania. That doesn't mean that I'm not open to conversing with anyone and everyone too. I want to share as much as I can and, and also learn as much as I can. So I'm always open for that. I love it, Brent. And I actually just went to your website and I signed up for the newsletter. So I'll be looking forward to the next one. Okay. Awesome. Hey, thanks. Well, Brent, thanks for being on the show. And we have to continue this conversation sometime in the near future. Oh, for sure, DeRay. Thanks for having me on. All right. Talk to you soon, Brent. How about those apples? Yeah. Awesome show. Big ups to Brent Sutherland for being on the show. He was outstanding. But I especially want to thank the loyal listeners who have listened to every single episode to date. Yeah, all five of them. <laughs> Tune in next week for another beastie interview with another investor, entrepreneur, or millionaire. We have a lot of great guests and high-profile investors in the next coming weeks, so it should be fun. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe, leave a rating and review, and let me know what you think of the show. It's really important to me to put out the best quality content that I can. Thanks, BTM community. We'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs>
Rádio.